The sermon text today will be Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 23, and you can find it in your pew Bible, page 822. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together. Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Your steadfast love is precious, O God. And the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. And in your light we see light. And so, Father, I ask you now, for the glory of your Son, the building up of your children and the salvation of the lost to set the feast of Jesus Christ before us this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are back, uh, friends, to uh, admire and uh, revel, and I mean that, revel in the beauty of the church again this morning uh, from our passage, and I linger on this theme, we started looking at it last week, and I linger on this theme uh, because when we think of the church, we don't often uh, jump to thinking about the beauty of the church. But you know, we ought to. And the reason we ought to is because the church is the beloved of Jesus. The church is the beloved bride of Jesus Christ. And the love of Jesus Christ, the omnipotent love of Jesus Christ, 
beautifies everything and everyone it touches. Every single person touched by the love of Christ is beautified by the love of Christ. Everything that is touched by the love of Christ is beautified by the love of Christ. Jesus' love is omnipotently beautifying. You know what he does? He takes the ugly duckling and he makes that ugly duckling a swan. His kiss turns toads into queens and kings who will reign upon the earth forever and ever. And more than that, he takes children of wrath and loves them with his beautifying love and transforms them into the children of God. He is the greater Midas. You know, King Midas, everything King Midas touched turned to gold. Well, Jesus Christ, Midas has nothing on Jesus Christ. Everything and everyone that Jesus Christ touches, he makes beautiful forever. Not with gold, something much greater than gold, with holiness. He takes, when Jesus' love touches you, friends, he takes all your impurities. That love removes all of the impurities and all of the guilt and all of the curse that your sin and my sin have earned and, and accumulated in our record. He takes it all. That love, when he touches us, he touches us to heal us. And healing involves taking that from us and then giving back to us his purity, his record, his righteousness. That's how he loves And that's how he beautifies. He beautifies us through this amazing exchange, this great exchange in which he wraps himself, not just in our flesh, but in our sin. Why? So that on the cross, he who is the light of the world might wrap himself, might clothe himself, not with light as a cloak like the psalmist says in Psalm 104, uh, that the Lord is wears light like a garment. No, what happens is that that same Lord who is, who is praised and worshipped by the psalmist in Psalm 104, who wraps himself with light as a cloak, that same God comes and in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, then walks and obeys triumphantly all the way to Calvary. And on that cross, he wraps himself in the darkness of our sin so that he might bear in his own body the full weight and consequences of our sin and his light for this moment of time on the cross. It's like he's swallowed up 
as the gravity of God, so weighty, so massive, the gravity of God's holiness brought in judgment against the sin of man is so weighty and so massive in that point on Calvary that it is like a spiritual black hole. There's so much weight that Jesus is swallowed up by it. That's how serious the collision between the sin of man and the, and the holiness of God is, that the one who is light himself is swallowed up into darkness that we have earned. And so great is his love that he went there for us. So friends, there is nobody Whose, whose life cannot be beautified by the love of Jesus Christ. And that's the story that the church is built by Jesus Christ to tell. Not just with its words, but with its people and its life. And because of his beauty, the church he builds is beautiful with his beauty. And so this morning, I want to remind you, I want to remind myself that we exist for the display and proof of Jesus Christ's beauty. We are his canvas, and on that canvas, he is painting the story of his beauty. And there are three aspects, three facets of the church's beauty I want to think about with you this morning, and they are not just facets of the church's beauty. By definition, uh, they are uh, beauties that we are to look through to the beauty of the Lord Jesus, our builder. And that is the beauty of Jesus Christ in his church's membership, the beauty of Jesus Christ in his church's mission, and the beauty of Jesus Christ in his church's triumph. So membership, mission, and triumph. Friends, the first place we see uh, the beauty of Jesus uh, is in the membership of his church. Now, we touched on this a couple of weeks ago. And uh, when we thought about Jesus' selection as Peter and his confession as the rock on which uh, he, the Lord promised to build his church. But I want to come back to it because there's more to say. And also because when, if we took a poll on the street, the average person on the street, we said, okay, what's beautiful about the church? If there was anything on their list, the, the thing that wouldn't be on their list is the membership of the church. How often have you heard, oh, but when church wasn't so full of hypocrites, I'd go to church. Yeah, right. Okay. But, oh my goodness, you know, Jesus doesn't think that way about his church and doesn't look at, that, look at his church that way. And so I want to make sure we get this. I, I don't want to be on the defensive, right? I, I want to be on the offensive here. I mean, that, to say that the members of the church aren't beautiful or to say that the church is not beautiful, it, it, you know, because it's full of hypocrites, is a little bit like saying, I'm not going to that hospital because you know what happens in that hospital. A bunch of sick people show up in the hospital. And your point is, it's why the hospital exists. Of course there are sinners and hypocrites in the church. Of course there are. Because we know that about ourselves. And the story that Jesus builds to 
the church to tell is not about our lack of hypocrisy. It's not about our fidelity. It's not about our obedience. It's not about our faithfulness. Do you understand what the church is for? If I sat down uh, to lunch with you today and I pulled a screwdriver out of my pocket and said, hey, I don't need any silverware because I brought this and started scooping the food into my mouth with a screwdriver, you would say some pretty choice things, one of which was, and no pun intended, I've got a screw loose. Because that's not what a screwdriver is for. The church, guys, unless you understand what it is and what it's for, you're going to misuse it and misperceive it. The church is not about us. The church is about the builder. It's about his faithfulness. It's about his fidelity. It's about his love. And Jesus builds the church to tell the story of his greatness. The wonder of the church is that, is that what happens inside of the church cannot deconstruct or isn't supposed to deconstruct the very message that's entrusted to the church. What is the message that Jesus has entrusted to the church? His gospel. What is the message of the gospel? It is not a message of man's fidelity. The gospel is not the good news of our obedience. The gospel is not the good news of our performance. The gospel is the good news of God's fidelity in the face of man's infidelity. The gospel is the good news of the fidelity of the one man, Jesus Christ. That's the story the church has been built to tell. That's why the church exists. And so Jesus' method, if that's his message then his method, if that's his message for the church, then his message in building the church reflects that. His message and his method are married together. So that's why he picks Peter. (laughs) Aren't you glad (laughs) that it's to Peter that he says, feed my sheep? Tend my lambs in John 21. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.16, Yet for this reason I, Saul of Tarsus, received mercy. Okay, why, why did Jesus Christ make you a Christian, Paul? Why did he do that? Listen to Paul's explanation of the reason he's a Christian. Yet for this reason I received mercy, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to all who would believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul is saying the reason I'm a Christian is so that Jesus Christ could set the floor not the ceiling. So in that floor, because of my offenses against Jesus and my pride and my, my, my self-righteousness, I have set the, fo- the floor, Jesus has set the floor so low that every other human being is above me by comparison, so there is hope for everyone. And that means that the church is filled by Jesus with the music of his mercy. When the king kisses a sinner, 
He puts a new song in your mouth, friend. He puts a new song in your mouth. And it's a song that you sing because you know that you have been made and remade by the magnificence of the mercy of Jesus Christ and not your own merit. When the king kisses a sinner, there's a new song in your mouth that makes you want to put away the old song of of your own heroism and your own merit and needing to be right all the time, even though you're not to lay aside the old tired music of your merit that never went anywhere anyway and was so monotonous, it was music. And to take up the most beautiful music there is, which is the music of the gospel, the music of the mercy of Jesus Christ. And Jesus builds his church like an instrument that he has tuned to the key of grace. And we are to play that song over and over and over again in our life together. Because Jesus is a restorer, it's what he is. That means that the song he gives to to his church to sing is a song that's full of the theme of restoration, not accomplishment not our achievement, not our guarding of ourselves from sin, not our self-elevation. No, it's about restoration. The only one who's being elevated in the church that Jesus builds is the builder, Jesus Christ, and we're all here to say, to be witnesses. The reason he's gathered us here is so that we together with our voices elevate him. And because that's why the church exists, For restoration, because the builder is a restorer, then that means that the people he builds his church with, the members of the church, there's only one kind of material that Jesus will ever choose for his church. It is his choice material. He searches the globe for this material. He finds this choice material in every corner of this globe. You know what it is? It's the restored, the people who embrace him and who know and confess gladly that they have been remade by the magnificent mercy of Jesus Christ and not their own merit. That's what the church's membership is. Do you know what that means? That means that by both the design and the delight of Jesus Christ, both, by both the design and delight of Jesus Christ, by both the plan and purpose of Jesus Christ, and at his pleasure, that means that there is a place for anyone and everyone in this church. Jesus doesn't need you to bring merit to the table, even if you had it. You don't have enough. But let me just relieve you of even thinking about it, because you don't have any. Oh, what what a freedom. He's got more than enough merit to build his church, more than enough merit to guard you, more than enough merit to provide for your eternal welfare. He doesn't need your merit. He doesn't need your achievement. So you don't have to bring any of those. You don't have to make yourself beautiful in order to come. Friends, in every other 
realm in this wide world, in every other sphere of human existence, beauty is the price of admission. Beauty is the price of admission in the world. Whether it's your grades, or your physical appearance, or your money, or your achievement, however you want to measure beauty, but beauty is how you get in. And it is tyrannical. The church of Jesus Christ is the only place in the entire universe where beauty is is Jesus' gift upon your admission. And that makes the church beautiful because it is a haven for those who know that they've been remade by mercy. The second facet of the beauty of Jesus Christ that we see is in his church's mission. And and it's really the mission that he entrusts to the church. And I'm thinking here primarily of verse 19 where Jesus says uh, to Peter as the representative of the other apostles says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Wow! That is is a grant of authority, isn't it? And that is a grant of massive responsibility. And it looks like Jesus has only given it to Peter, because when he uh, addresses the you, we don't see it in English, but it's very clear in the original. In verse 19, all the yous are singular. So he's talking to Peter. And so this has given rise to the conclusion, right, that Peter is the only one to whom the keys of the kingdom of heaven have been given. But that's not true, because if you go look with me at chapter 18, this is important. Okay, because you'll encounter this argument. You'll encounter it in your own Bible reading, uh, let alone elsewhere. And when you get to chapter 18, verse 18, uh, Jesus is now addressing all the, uh, the, the apostles, and he says this, Truly I say to you, plural, whatever you, plural, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you, plural, loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, Just two chapters over, Jesus assumes that the very same grant of authority is given to all and trusted equally to all the apostles. So the grant in chapter 16 is given to Peter as a representative grant, as the leader of the, the band of the apostles, but not as an exclusive grant. So it's very important to see that at the outset. Okay, This is something that Jesus, this is a mission that Jesus is entrusting. I want you to see two levels. It's a, it's a mission that Jesus is entrusting to his apostles and through his apostles to the church in every generation on Uh, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Ephesians 2.20. So this is a grant that comes in a chain of custody from Jesus 
to the apostles and through the apostles to the church that Jesus builds on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And friends, we are holding the foundation of the apostles in our hands this morning. Now let's think a little bit after that overview. Let's think a little bit about what's happening here. Notice that Jesus is the owner of the keys. He gives them. And he entrusts those keys to his apostles. And he, by doing that, he makes them his stewards. They're his keys. And if the apostles are Jesus' stewards, that means that the keys He's requiring that the keys can only be used for his purposes according to his will. Now, when you read verse 19, it almost sounds like what I just said isn't true. It almost sounds, look at verse 19 again, especially the second half. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now that, you know, when you just look at it on the surface, what that looks like is that earth decides something and heaven obeys. That earth's wish is heaven's command. That is not at all what the text says. There's a grammar moment here coming. Are you ready? You excited? If I said to you, what is the future perfect passive? Would your brain just go, snap? Let me tell you how this reads literally. It's the future perfect passive. I want you to hear this. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words... The literal grammar conveys what our translation obscures. It is that heaven is the initiator and earth is the response. So what Jesus is promising here is not a blank check from heaven to endorse whatever the apostles decide to do, but totally the opposite picture, which is that the keys of the kingdom, the authority that goes with the keys... Uh, to the apostles and through them to the church that Jesus builds, that that is heaven's authority being exercised and stewarded on earth uh, by the representatives of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's his will that is to prevail. So that's important because what it means is that the, the keys have been given to the church to embody and exercise and proclaim the will of Jesus, to follow and manifest, to show, to obey and to show through our life on earth what the will of Jesus Christ is. Jesus is the builder of the church. Jesus is the owner of the church. Jesus is the ruler of the church. The keys he gives to the church are his keys. They can only be used for his purposes. 
and we think of it, friends. Think about what the church is called. We are the body of Christ. So when I say that we are to embody the will of Jesus, that is not just a figure of speech. That is how closely Jesus identifies with his church. Remember what he says to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, not them, me? So Jesus is not handing the keys to the church and saying, whatever you decide, I'll back. He's saying, I'm entrusting these keys to you for the showing and the doing of my will. You are to live and love by every word that comes from my mouth as your king. And every one of your earthly endeavors is to echo my will. So what is Jesus' will for his church? Well, three Three things, and he, three ways that he puts his beauty on display through the keys. And I, I love these. I just, I had so much fun thinking about this. It was so, you know what always amazes me is when I think back to when I was a, I'm going to tell you the three, just hang on. When I think back to when I was a non-Christian, I had such a low view of God. I thought that he was, I thought that, that God was fundamentally about uh, shrinking my life and crushing my joy. And the reality is, he is exactly the opposite. He expands your life and, and causes your joy to flourish. And as I was thinking about the keys, I thought, I just, I was struck again by how much dignity this grant of the keys, this is the first point, how much dignity Jesus is entrusting to his people here. Friends, these are the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now think about how keys work for a minute. What do they do? Well, keys protect things that are valuable, right? Keys uh, gain and block access. Keys let you in. Keys keep you out. Keys exclude and admit. Keys define boundaries. Keys set you free and keys lock you up. And look at this. The king of heaven says he's going to give his keys to the kingdom of heaven. To sinners, men and women and children in the church who've been remade by the mercy of Christ. It is so astonishing. Think of this. I mean, this is such a big vision of the church. You see that? I mean, That's one thing. I mean, look at how Jesus, look at what a high vision Jesus has for his church. Not a low vision of the church, very high vision of the church that he would give the keys and trust the keys of the kingdom of heaven to his church. And, and, And friends, that means, I mean, if you think about it, we who have squandered every gift he ever gave us has entrusted to us the most important and consequential work 
in the universe outside the Trinity. So if you're part of the church of Jesus Christ, understand that you are part of the body in the universe that has the most consequential work and dignity entrusted to it in all the universe outside of the Trinity. The angels do not hold the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The redeemed, restored, remade by mercy sinners do. Secondly, I want you to see I want you to see how this grant of the keys uh, demonstrates that Jesus still rules the world. Friends, it is Jesus Christ who determines what is sin and what is not sin. It is not the United States Supreme Court. It is not the Congress of the United States. It is not your favorite politician. It is not your conscience. It is not your culture. It is not your family. It is not you who decide what is right and wrong. It is not the government of the United States that can say the kingdom of heaven is open to anyone or the kingdom of heaven is open to no one. No one gets to say that except Jesus Christ. Uh, Muhammad doesn't have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Buddha does not have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you know, all the Hindu pantheon doesn't have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. These are Jesus Christ's keys. No one enters the kingdom of heaven except on his absolute conditions and everyone who does not abide by accept to yield to the conditions of Jesus Christ will never gain entrance into that kingdom we need to hear this we don't decide for ourselves that keeping the Ten Commandments is good enough for God to admit us into his kingdom. How many times have I heard that? Even if it were true that you have kept them, which it is not. Jesus says, I, I, a person, am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Unless you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will not be saved. And you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I plead with you it's not you who decide the boundaries of the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus Christ's sovereign right, and it is a beautiful exclusivity, is it not? 
It is beautiful because what it says, friends, is that there is one who is matchless. There is one who is peerless, who not only possesses all power and all authority in heaven and on earth, but that same omnipotent king is omnipotently gracious. And there is no one in his category. He has no peers. And this one who is infinitely holy is also the one who dwells with the lowly and the contrite of spirit to revive them, to save them. And that brings us to the third implication of the keys, which is that Jesus not only dignifies his people and not only is he still ruling the world with his exclusive rights as king, but you know what? He, the keys prove that he is still so generous in his posture toward the world. He says, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The good news of the gospel, the church exists to tell the story that it is still possible to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that is good news. And that good news will prevail until the day the Lord returns. But I plead with you not to take his generosity for granted. Feel the urgency of it. Look at the cross. Think about what he did for sinners like you. Think about the generosity of his love. And make that determine how urgently you should respond to that. Let's come now to our third point, which is the beauty of Jesus Christ in his church's triumph. Now, the first thing you have to see, in, and, and let's, we're zeroing in on verse 18. Let me just read it to you again. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and now notice this, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The first thing that Jesus is promising here is conflict. Do you see that? It's promising conflict. The gates of hell, literally the gates of Hades. Now, I included, and the reason I had the Winston Churchill quote two weeks in a row, you're probably saying, what is this guy not doing his job during the week? Well, last week we were supposed to talk about all these points together. I know you're laughing at me. I'm the only one who couldn't figure this out until Friday. Okay, But I had already given Gina the quotes. So I had to do it again because this Winston Churchill quote is so helpful to me. You know, it's a, it's a quote from, I, I think it's the first uh, lengthy speech. He became prime minister on May 10th, 1940, the day that the Germans invaded uh, France and the Low Countries. But he gives this speech, this very famous speech on May 13th, 1940. And I've included it for a couple of reasons. And one, it's so stirring. It's so stirring. And number two, it's totally wrong. It's totally wrong. Let me tell you what I mean. I'm a big student of World War II, and I'm not in any sense saying that the Nazis were not a monstrous tyranny. They were. But I know that the Reich 
was not the most monstrous tyranny in the long, lamentable catalog of human crime. See, Jesus is talking here about the most monstrous tyranny that has never been surpassed in human history. The monstrous tyranny that both precedes the Nazi regime and exceeds the cruelty and the crimes of the Nazis and every other regime on the earth for that matter by an infinite order of magnitude. And it's against this most monstrous tyranny. Friends, you see, you can't think about the church in a naive way. Jesus isn't naive here. When he looks at the world, he sees something that we don't see. He sees a tyranny. He sees a cruelty. You know, all tyrants and all tyranny, all earthly tyrants and all earthly tyranny, all uh, earthly uh, cruel persons and all earthly cruelty, all earthly oppression and all earthly oppressors, all earthly enslavers and all earthly slavery, those for all their viciousness and their cruelty and their harshness, they are but a shadow and an approximation of the most cruel, the most oppressive, the most tyrannical regime that has ever been on the face of the earth and it has prevailed on the earth and spread through the earth since the garden. It is the reign of sin and death. And it is against that tyranny that Jesus is saying he is going to build his church. And that tyranny, you know, the Nazis didn't reach every era of history. They didn't reach every uh, area of the globe, and they didn't reach every human heart. But the tyranny that Jesus is saying he is going to build his church in order to prevail against, that's a tyranny that reaches every era in history, every area of the world, and 100% of every human heart. It is the reign of sin and death, and it is brutal, and it is cruel, and it is vicious. When Jesus looks at our world, friends, he does not see a Thomas Kincaid painting where everything's just right. That's why we like Thomas Kincaid paintings. That's why we like The Hobbit. We like to look at the Shire because that's the way our world isn't. Jesus is utterly realistic about the world. He's utterly realistic about it. He doesn't see a land flowing with milk and honey. He sees a land flowing with blood and oppression that is the fruit of sin. He sees, when Jesus looks at the world, he sees that the seed of the serpent has grown since Genesis 3. And it has grown from the garden into a global regime. It has filled the earth with its tyranny. And now it has become a full-fledged regime, and it has gates. It's an empire. And gates, friends, are an Old Testament symbol for power and authority. The gates of a city were the place where the judicial matters of the city were accomplished, where the political power was concentrated, and where the commercial, the significant commercial transactions in the community were handled. So gates are the symbol of the power. They stand, they'd be like the White House or the Capitol. 
And Jesus is saying, notice, he now, now this, this dark regime, that hell has gates, right? It has, it's a regime. The world is, is full of the evil one, right? First John says the whole world, 1 John 5.19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Jesus is promising conflict, that he is going to build his church on the field of conflict. And when he looks, not just at the world, but he looks at his church, what he sees is that those gates are going down. And he's going to use his church to do it. That is awesome. Once again, a very high vision of the church, not from a pastor or from elders, but from Jesus Christ himself. Are you moved by that? Do you see the importance of the cause? Do you believe in that tyranny? I know you do, because you felt its boot on your neck. But I just want you to see it the way Jesus sees it. It's oppressive. Sin is an oppressor. Sin is not a freedom giver. That's, you know, Pinocchio thought that sin uh, would give him freedom. What did sin do? It turned him into a jackass. Made him a slave. See, the church is on the offensive here. Do you see this? So often, because of that word prevail, people read that image and they misunderstand it. They think that the image is the church is going to be in this holy huddle and whatever hell throws against it, the church will survive. That's not the image. The church is on the offensive here, just in the same way that Jesus has come to bring the kingdom. God is on the offensive in the world. This regime is on the defensive. Christian, do you understand that God, the Holy One, is on the offensive against the remaining sin in your life? God is not on the defensive in your life. You need to lay hold of God's strength against your sin. Don't be passive. Don't don't let sin act like it's the ruler in your soul because it is not. Sin shall not be master over you for you are not under law but under grace. That's who you are now. Sin is not your master. You are not a victim. And God is not a bystander in your life. Take him up on it. And Jesus, notice, When he promises conflict, we have to be realistic about this, right? We have to be realistic about this. Jesus builds his church in a field of conflict, but he also, notice, promises triumph. Do you see that? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's conflict and triumph through that conflict. And the reason the gates of hell are not going to prevail against against the church is because they didn't prevail and they can't prevail against Jesus, the builder of the church. So when Jesus says what he says in verse 18, you are not supposed to say, oh my goodness, I guess I got to man up. I guess I got to become a superhero and fight the powers of hell. That is exactly the wrong way to understand it. 
because the, the triumph of the church is founded on the triumph of Jesus. The triumph of the church is the extension of Jesus' triumph. And Jesus tells us what his battle plan is in verse 21. And it is a shocking battle plan. It's not the way we think about battle plans. Because here's his battle plan. Listen to this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, I thought, I thought this was about triumph, Mike. And you say that Jesus is going to suffer? Suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, the people with authority, spiritual authority, actually, and be killed. It's going to be judicially executed and on the third day be raised. That's his battle plan. Now, that's a shocking battle plan because what it means is Jesus is saying, hey, here's how, here's how I'm going to achieve my victory. by being defeated. My path to triumph is going to be a path that's marked by weakness and suffering. I read this this morning in Hebrews 2. For since the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise also partook of the same in order that through death he might defeat the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus uses death against death. He uses sin against sin. All evil in the end is self-destructive and God knows that. I was thinking about this earlier this week. You know, this is the pattern throughout the entire Bible. The Holy Spirit has laid down the DNA of this shocking victory everywhere throughout the whole Bible. The Bible genome is full of this DNA of triumph through weakness. You know, it starts in Genesis 3.15, right? You, you shall bruise his heel, but he shall crush your head. The seed of the woman is going to triumph over the seed of the serpent and the serpent, uh, by, not triumphalistically, with no injury and no suffering, but through suffering, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's how it happens. And I was thinking about this this week. I was reading 1 Samuel, and I saw a commentary on the cross in 1 Samuel. You know this story in 1 Samuel 5? This is so amazing. I love, you know, Old Testament is so great. In 1 Samuel 5, you know, Israel is just a total mess in the beginning of 1 Samuel. I mean, just, oh, my goodness. And they decide, they're gonna, they, they, they decide, hey, you know what? We're not doing so good against the Philistines, so you know what we ought to do? We ought to bring the ark out with us into battle. And then, you know, because we've got, we've got like our, our rabbit's foot, we'll knock them over. Israel wants to use God. So what happens? Now the ark, you got to remember what the ark is. The ark is in the Holy of Holies. And between the cherubim, the cloud of glory is. And they bring it out use it like a tool and God lets it be captured by the Philistines. And you know what the Philistines do with the ark? 
they think, oh, we just beat Israel's God. He must be weak. So we will put him, we will put the ark in the temple of our God, Dagon. So they bring the ark in and they put it at the foot of the statue of Dagon in the temple as if to to make the Lord of Israel the trophy of this false god. And the next morning, they come in to Dagon's temple and guess what happened to Dagon? Face down in the ground in front of the ark. So they say, well, that's not good. Let's put him back up. So they put him back up. They come in the next morning. He's face down again. His hands have been cut off. And he's been decapitated. You know, that's the story of the cross, friends. Because what God has done is he has made the false God worship him, bowing down. He has shown, by letting himself be captured and paraded as a prisoner, he has shown that he alone is God. He has shown the impotence of all the false gods, cuts his head off, just like David does to Goliath, cuts his hands off. He's powerless. And friends, it looks, it looked, when the Philistines put the ark in Dagon's temple, it looked like the Lord had lost. When they hung, and the irony was, he had won. When they hung Jesus Christ on the cross, when he went to the cross, it looked like he had lost. It didn't look like triumph. It looked like defeat. And yet it was the consummate victory in history. Jesus looked like a lamb, but he was a lion. He looked like prey on the cross, but it was he who was the predator. He looked like the lowest of all criminals on the cross when he was the highest of all kings. He looked like a weak and vulnerable lamb when he was the omnipotent lion. It looked to the naked eye like Jesus was losing, but he was winning. It looked like Jesus, to the naked eye, it looked like Jesus was being enslaved when he was the liberator. It looked like he was being crushed when in fact it was only his heel that was being bruised and he was grinding the head of Satan into the dust. Friends, Jesus promises conflict. He promises triumph. And the triumph of the church is is his triumph. And that means that when we're thinking about the triumph that we should expect to encounter in our lives as Christ's people, you know what? the way Jesus accomplished his triumph is going, to be, it's going to be the way we accomplish our triumph. We want triumph for us to be dun, 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 and everything goes great, right? That we just come in with overwhelming force. We don't have problems. We want a triumphalistic vision of triumph, but that is not the way Jesus got his triumph, right? He got his triumph through weakness, through quietness, through obscurity, through faithfulness, and even 
through the willingness to give up his own life. Now I know when you hear me use the word triumph, I know that visions of Corey Ten Boom and John Calvin and Martin Luther and Billy Graham start dancing in your heads. And I know you think of yourself in comparison to those people. I stink. I'm nothing. There's no triumph of Christ in me. Friends, let's remind ourselves today that virtually all of the Christians with whom Jesus Christ has built his church for millennia, virtually all of the Christians against whom or with whom Jesus has uh, been prevailing against the gates of hell in this world, virtually all of those Christians are unknown to us. We don't know their names. We don't know what they did. We won't know their deeds until the last day. That gives me great joy and comfort. You want to know what triumph looks like? It looks like abiding as a branch abides in the vine. It looks like faith. Not that's a flawless, but faith that perseveres. Faith that looks to God. This is the victory, the Apostle John says, that has overcome the world. Our faith. Don't expect triumph to look differently than Jesus' triumph. But expect a lot of triumph in ways that Jesus defines triumph. The kingdom of heaven is like a little mustard seed. It's the smallest seed in the garden. It looks like it's the most insignificant thing in the world. But when it has grown up, it's the largest of all plants, and the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Don't despise the day of small things. Friends, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which God puts into the dough and it leavens the whole lump. It is a beautiful thing to attempt great things for God. It is the right response to the gospel. Make sure, dear friends, however, that your definition of greatness is Jesus' definition of greatness. Let's pray. Lord, oh Lord, how we thank you this morning for taking us up and loving us so deeply and thoroughly, for making us your own, Lord, may our lives continue to be the canvas that tells the story of your faithfulness. We pray in your name. Amen.